0: now summer offensive going uh for the ukrainian military
1: it's an abysmal failure i mean they've lost upwards of um, ten thousand troops already uh, both on the line of contact and in the rear assembly areas um this this offensive has no chance of succeeding they have yet to penetrate or and even make uh, significant contact with the first line of russian defenses let alone the second or third line um you know they bogged down in the initial uh, obstacle barriers, the minefields. Um, they are being uh, their attack is broken up by artillery and um, and air... everything I told you was going to happen. Judge is happening here. the The, the Russian doctrinal defense is um, that the Ukrainians are incapable of breaching it. And what makes this even more criminal is that any military professional knows this, especially those who wear four stars on their uh, shoulders, who served in the U.S. Army. They know the army doctrine for, um, uh, you know, a, a breaching assault. And they know that one of the, fir- the the very first requirement is suppression. That means suppressing Russian artillery, air, electronic warfare, everything. The Ukrainians have suppressed nothing. Therefore, this is literally a suicide uh, attack. The Ukrainians can do once again
2: what they did earlier in the war, which is to do better than Russia in forced generation. In other words, in recruiting, training, equipping, organizing and employing additional forces.
1: Well, now we know why we lost the war in Iraq and we lost the war in Afghanistan, because everything that uh, David Petraeus just said was wrong. Everything. Not one thing he said was right. Ukrainians are not well trained. They're not well led. Uh, You can't be well led when you have 28 year old, 25 and 28 year old battalion commanders with less than one year Uh, of military experience Uh, that's not well-led you're not well-trained when you fall in on equipment for the first time in January Uh, you begin training on it in February and you're done by May Uh, that's not well-trained on anything either the operation of the equipment this masterful US made infantry fighting vehicle the Bradley or the Leopard tank or any of the Western made artillery systems Ukrainians don't know how to use them Uh, they're not well-trained they're poorly led their morale is poor Meanwhile, the Russians, everything he said about the Russians is wrong. Uh, they're, you know, these troops have high morale, extraordinary levels of training. We're seeing it right now as they absorb the Ukrainian uh, attacks, as they respond, a uh, counterattack locally. The Ukrainians haven't come close to the first line of defense yet. The Russians are well-led, well-trained, well-equipped. Uh, their morale is sky-high right now. Um, everything Petraeus said is 100% wrong. I I mean, normally when somebody humiliates themselves like that on national TV, they uh, gracefully retire and go play golf or, you know, bridge or whatever else people do at that stage in their lives. But they shouldn't be going on national TV and promulgating such poor analysis. But remember, this is the man who gave us Afghanistan.
3: Here
0: Here he is again in the same interview. You can take a guess, a mental guess, as to what he wants to see happen in Vilnius on July 11. And you can also take a guess on his opinion on F-16s. But there
2: should be a very solid path to NATO membership that's provided at the Vilnius summit on 11 July. But in the meantime, the focus should be on enabling Ukraine to the greatest extent that we possibly can, so that the Ukrainians can prove to Putin that the Russians will not be able to out the Ukrainians, and also, we prove, they won't be able to out the Europeans and the Americans as well.
4: Does this include F-16 jets?
2: Oh, absolutely. We should have made the decision to transition to Western aircraft long ago. Again, this is inevitable.
1: What's inevitable is that the uh, any F-16s that are provided to the Ukrainians, if they are, uh, will be destroyed, uh, either on the ground or in the air. They'll have no impact on the battlefield whatsoever. They can't. Again, General Petraeus is betraying um, the fact that he's lying through his teeth. Um, I know he's an army officer, but he was, you know, a, a commander who had worked with the Air Force and understands the limitations of the F-16 as a platform. The logistical requirements, the fact that the Ukrainians will be getting F-16s that are beyond their expiration date, being piloted by people who don't know how to fly them with insufficient training and weaponry. It's a death trap. And um, Atreus knows this, uh, why he's saying this is beyond me. Well, what it means by path is there's, I believe there's uh, seven um, things that Ukraine has to do to be a member of NATO, according to their membership application plan, which was approved. back in, uh, 2008 uh, they've only accomplished two of those and uh, I mean Joe Biden uh, the president of the United States has come out and said there ain't no path to Ukraine being a member right now because uh, while they've done two things there's you know there's still corruption there's still a lot of things we don't know about uh, we're not satisfied with plus it's just remember it's a path towards membership what no one's asking Ukraine to be a member now except Ukraine um, NATO understands that you can't have Ukraine become a NATO member now what, what they're talking about is a post-conflict world where, you know, the fantasy world where Ukraine prevails and the Russians retreat and Ukraine gets everything it wants. How then do you transition in a post-conflict environment to Ukraine becoming a member as soon as possible? But again, this is total fantasy. Let me just reiterate what I've said all along. Uh, Ukraine is on the path of destruction. Uh, the course that they've taken uh, in concert with their NATO allies will lead to Russia acquiring another 20-30% to 30% of Ukraine's territory, uh, the demise, probably fatal demise of the Zelensky government and uh, guaranteeing that whatever is left of Ukraine, uh, once Russia wins decisively, will be a little rump state with no economic viability, no political viability, it will be a horrible tragedy for the people of Ukraine.
5: So, what do you think? Can we destroy any building in Kiev? There are no limitations uh, for us, but we don't do it uh, due to a number of considerations.
0: What do you think? He's the calmest, he's the calmest guy in the room.
1: And he has every reason to be calm because he's in control. I mean, you know, it would have been, his calmness would have been more impressive had we seen it and we did see it uh, a year ago. Uh, Because a year ago, There were a lot of factors that were unknown, like how strong, how resilient the Russian economy would be, uh, what the political consequences of mobilization would be. Um, They still didn't know what the uh, ramifications of uh, NATO's billion dollars, tens of billions of dollars of aid to Ukraine would be. So Putin was not in the same position that he wasn't. He was hesitant to go forward and have this kind of interaction today, a year later. You're seeing the most relaxed man in the world. That is a man comfortable with every aspect of his existence. Uh, He has a sense of humor. The facts are there because he knows what this outcome will be. He is in charge. He is in the driver's seat. There's nothing the West can do uh, short of a nuclear war, which would be the end of everybody. And he's already indicated that if that's the route they want to go, so be it. Uh, Everybody will be dead, but the Russians will go to heaven as martyrs. how do you deal with that mindset? Uh, you know, but he is comfortable with the strength of Russia, with the posture of Russia. Um, nothing's going to ruffle this guy. Compare and contrast that with everybody else on the Western side. Look at the frustration of Hodges. I mean, that was a man fidgeting in his seat. Look at Petraeus. He's scared deer in headlights as he's lying to everybody. Look at Sullivan. Look at Blinken. Look at Biden. They are running scared. Biden can't get in front of his donors without panicking. The threat of a Russian nuclear attack is real is real, he said. Well, if you look at Putin, does he look like a man frothy at the mouth, waiting to attack? What he said is, we're here, we're ready to negotiate after we destroy everything. We, we took out five patriot systems in Kiev, he said. <laughs> and he did. And he said, so we can take out anything we want to, but we choose not to. That's a man in total.
4: mitter begins by painting a grim picture of the Ukrainian offensive, describing it as an abysmal failure he cites the loss of upwards of 10,000 troops both on the line of contact and in the rear assembly areas. This, he argues, is a clear indication that the offensive has no chance of succeeding. It's a stark contrast to the narrative we often hear in mainstream media, which tends to paint a more optimistic picture of Ukraine's military efforts. But Ritter's analysis, grounded in his extensive experience, suggests that we may need to recalibrate our expectations. Ritter also takes aim at General Petrius's analysis of the situation. He criticizes Petrius for painting an overly rosy picture of the Ukrainian military's capabilities. According to Ritter, the Ukrainians are not well trained or well led. He points out that battalion commanders are young, with less than a year of military experience. This, he argues, is not indicative of strong leadership. It's a sobering reminder that military prowess is not just about numbers or equipment, but also about the quality of leadership and training. The discussion then turns to the idea of providing F-16 jets to Ukraine. Witter is unequivocal in his assessment. Any F-16 seconds provided to the Ukrainians will be destroyed, either on the ground or in the air, They'll have no impact on the battlefield whatsoever. This is a stark reminder that military aid is not a silver bullet solution. It's not just about providing equipment. It's also about ensuring that the recipients have the necessary training and infrastructure to effectively use that equipment. Witter also touches on the topic of Ukraine's potential NATO membership. He argues that Ukraine is on a path of destruction and that its current course will lead to Russia acquiring another 20 to 30% of Ukraine's territory. This is a sobering perspective and one that challenges the narrative that NATO membership would be a panacea for Ukraine's security woes. Click the video on screen to stay updated and fight the free people's movement. Click this video now to stay updated.
6: 35,000 missing in action and presumed dead. When you add that to the number you're at uh 157,000 dead.
3: The significant offensive operations carried out by the Ukrainian armed forces have now forced the Russian army into a deep swamp at Bakhmut in the Donetsk region.
7: Many have come close to death, some surviving deadly missile strikes. Can you tell me what happened to you on March the 1st? I saw a light and everything crashed. Without the support, Ukraine would no longer exist as it exists today. So what NATO does, whatever it does, matters to the Ukraine war. Because basically, as long as NATO is united and supports Ukraine, Russia cannot win this war.
6: And they can't evacuate much of anybody at this point because Zelensky has given them this Hitlerian order, which is to hold every inch of ground instead of allowing these people to withdraw to new defensive lines. This is this is a disaster. It's a catastrophe. The Russians are not losing. They're poised to put an end to this and it's not going to be attractive. And the biggest mistake we can make at this stage of the game is to intervene in this thing, just as it's ending on the assumption that somehow or another we can we can turn back the clock. We can't. And we certainly don't want to risk direct confrontation with Russia. If we do, then the the danger of the nuclear confrontation It goes through the roof.
4: The situation in Ukraine is far from a simple conflict. It's a complex web of geopolitical interests, historical grievances, and strategic calculations. The war has been raging for quite some time now, with each side accusing the other of aggression and violations of international law. The media narrative, however, often paints a different picture, one that doesn't always align with the realities on the ground. The conflict has seen Russia amassing a significant military presence around Ukraine, with estimates suggesting numbers Upwards of 650,000 to 700,000 troops. This is not a mere show of force. It's a clear indication of Russia's intent and capability to escalate the conflict if it deems necessary.
6: When you add that to the number, you're at 157,000 dead. The hospitals are full to the brim. They're bursting with wounded, ter- terribly wounded people. And as we were talking earlier, the report that came in this morning from a Ukrainian source on Telegram talks about the numbers of Ukrainian soldiers, wounded soldiers dying in the cold because they they do not have adequate clothing and they can't evacuate them. And they can't evacuate much of anybody at this point because Zelensky has given them this Hitlerian order, which is to hold every inch of ground instead of allowing these people to withdraw to new defensive lines. So this this is a disaster, it's a catastrophe. The Russians are not losing, they're poised to put an end to this, And it's not going to be attractive And the biggest mistake we can make at this stage of the game is to intervene in this thing, just as it's ending on the assumption that somehow or another, we can, we can turn back the clock. We can't, and we certainly don't want to risk direct confrontation with Russia. If we do, then the the danger of the nuclear confrontation, it goes through the roof.
3: The significant offensive operations carried out by the Ukrainian armed forces have now forced the Russian army into a deep swamp at Bakhmut in the Donetsk region. After this, the attack slowed down, and the Ukrainian troops broke through the Russian lines at Novo Donetsky in the Donbass region with 30 leopards and two tanks at the time. The Ukrainians kept pushing forward toward the Luhansk region, taking Berkivka in the process. However, The primary offensive axis in the Ukrainian armed forces most recent major offensive plans has switched towards the southern axis of the country rather than the eastern front lines of the country. This is because the Ukrainian armed forces believe that they will have more success if they attack from the south. The territory known as Zaporizhia was the primary target of the striking operations that were carried out by Ukrainian forces.
4: The human cost of this conflict is staggering. The Ukrainian government has reportedly lost an estimated 157,000 lives, a figure that shocks many due to its absence from mainstream media narratives. These are not just numbers, these are lives lost, families shattered, communities devastated. The Ukrainian president, Zelensky, has been accused of disregarding human life on an unprecedented scale, comparable to the atrocities committed during World War II. The question that arises is, how long can this go on? How many more lives will be sacrificed in the name of geopolitical interests?
6: The the Russians have made it very clear that unless they are attacked with a nuclear weapon, they will not use nuclear weapons. They don't need to. They're ultimately dominating the battlefield. For instance, every single day, the Russians fire upwards of almost 60,000 artillery rounds from all the artillery systems, rockets, shells, and so forth. The Ukrainians can only fire roughly 6,000 back at them. Now stop and think about that. Uh, I'm a soldier. I have been under artillery fire. I've driven in my tank through artillery fire, including airburst as well as groundburst. And 60,000 rounds is is beyond my comprehension. That's like living under a a rain of steel, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Unless you can silence the enemy systems, All you can do is withdraw, withdraw, withdraw. Uh, And instead of withdrawing, which would be the intelligent thing, uh, they're leaving their soldiers there to die in great numbers.
7: Many have come close to death. Some surviving deadly missile strikes. Can you tell me what happened to you on March the 1st? I saw a
5: light and everything crashed.
7: I was shouting, and I'll never forget the man who was screaming next to me. He died.
4: When I escaped, the paramedics said that day was my second birthday.
7: It's me. That's
8: you being pulled out.
4: The conflict in Ukraine is not just a regional issue, it's a global one. It's a proxy war with the United States, NATO, and their allies on one side and Russia on the other. The stakes are high and the potential for escalation is real. The United States in particular has been heavily involved providing financial and military support to Ukraine. In many ways, Ukraine has become the 51st state of the US, heavily reliant on American aid and support. But what does this mean for the future of the conflict? Will the US and its allies continue to fuel the war or will they seek a diplomatic solution? The answer to this question will shape the future of Ukraine and the global geopolitical landscape.
6: We don't need to be involved with most of the world. And what happens oh. in most of the world on any given day doesn't make much difference to us. No, I and, agree. And, and the other thing is talk about our sovereignty. You know, we're, we're talking about Ukrainian sovereignty. What about ours? We've given it up. We've abandoned the borders. We, we don't enforce law. We've undermined, uh, you know, law enforcement. We're exalting criminality. We're treating it as though it's something good. Uh, this, this all has to go away, but the only way to get a, get rid of it is to build a new platform. I and agree. that platform has to have media. In other words, you've got to develop the alternative to what is dominating us in the mainstream. Call it a free speech platform or a confederation of platforms, whatever you want. I don't see anybody on the right with any money stepping forward to do anything. Right. Well, it's worth trying. Unfortunately, my view is that not a whole hell of a lot is going to happen until everything implodes. But again, let Americans aren't prepared to do very much.
7: Let's face it, without the support, Ukraine would no longer exist as it exists today. So what NATO does, whatever it does, matters to the Ukraine war, because basically as long as NATO is united and supports Ukraine, Russia cannot win this war, period. And so here, by being able to stage this exercise and, you know, like signaling that NATO is serious also about its air power, I think it supports indirectly the Ukrainian effort. Because let's not forget, Russia has as an objective to divide NATO. We can see this, you know, like in so many different facets, but one of them is that it was actually actively involved in in France that was just um, spilled yesterday by the foreign minister there, like, um, you know, having fake websites and and propagating that, you know, like this was basically a a NATO-initiated war, not a Russia war. I
2: think that the people in the Baltic states and, and, and around the globe and in Ukraine and, and Eastern Europe will sleep well only when Russia becomes a normal state, a democratic state, but it's not about the maneuvers, it's not about military plane or NATO, it's about being normal country.
9: Okay, I think it should be one component, yes, Uh, that is one component to strengthen uh, deterrence. But what should be, of course, uh, done in the future is to see that Ukraine is also important for our security. So we should supply Ukraine actually with more air defense. F-16s? There's yes, slightly
3: course. larger chance that it, it, uh, President Biden has said he's willing to see Ukrainian pilots trained on, on yes, F-16. Yes, Will they be a game changer?
9: No. At the moment, not not for the next months of, 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 of that offensive.
4: The situation in Ukraine is a stark reminder of the complexities of global politics. It's a conflict that transcends borders, involving major global powers in a high-stakes geopolitical chess game. As global strategists, it's our responsibility to look beyond the surface, to Understand the underlying dynamics and to anticipate the potential consequences of this conflict.
1: 2023 will be the last year that we're all alive on this planet. Kiss your loved ones goodbye. Do what you need to do. It's over because it will lead to nuclear war. And as Helga said, there are no winners. We are on the cusp of thermonuclear war. Uh, you know, we, I keep hearing people talk about comparing situation we face today with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Hey, I used to be good friends with a general named William Polk, who was right there next to Kennedy when this happened. Well, the Russians have not only checked us on this, but checkmated us on this. They have weapons today that and they're deployed. It's not theoretical weapons, real weapons deployed that nullify all of this. So America has no chance. If we ever initiated something like this, we would be destroyed before the people who initiated realized they had failed. (laughs) That's how quick the Russian retaliation would be. They'd still be thinking we're winning. We're winning. We're no, you're dead. You're done. You're gone. Um, And yet we're going to spend trillions of dollars modernizing our own nuclear enterprise. Now, in a furtive hope that somehow we can match the Russians. Well, we can't. I will tell you this without a shadow of a doubt, without fear of contradiction, every weapon system that we are currently talking about employing to replace the existing triad is not sufficient to the task.
4: As we start our story, we're looking at a world that's really close to a big fight involving nuclear weapons. Either the person we're talking about says the situation is like a scary horseman from a story who represents death rushing towards us. He thinks we're really close to a huge war with nuclear weapons, a situation that's even scarier than a big crisis that happened between Cuba and the U.S. a long time ago. Why is this happening? Because people aren't talking and solving problems the way they used to. During that crisis with Cuba, people from America and Russia talk to each other and figure things out, but Twitter says that today people from the US and Russia aren't really talking or solving problems together.
1: The nuclear enterprise, the Department of Defense reigns supreme, it is responsible for every aspect of the nuclear enterprise to this day, to include any notion of arms control negotiations. And when I brought this up to um, Ambassador Antonov, he said, well, sadly, you know, because Nothing exists in a vacuum. You can't expect the Russians to retain a certain expertise in arms control negotiation. If it isn't exercised, it's like any muscle. If you don't exercise it, it atrophies And the Russian negotiation component has likewise atrophied and stepping into the vacuum is the Russian ministry of defense. So we have two, the world's two largest nuclear arsenals and the people responsible for coming up with mechanisms to control these arsenals and hopefully diminish these arsenals are the very same people who are responsible for modernizing these arsenals and making these weapons more relevant to their respective national security postures. and gentlemen, this is insanity, literally the definition of insanity. I can't come up with a quicker route towards global suicide than the one I just described. Nobody is talking disarmament everybody's talking arms race. The Russians are already well ahead. They've lapped us 22 times. They have new missiles, new systems out there that we can't match. This is a pro tip to all the wonderful US senators out there. Diane, I hope one day you, your name is amongst them. Maybe you can whisper sanity in their ears. All the ones that are there right now, without exception, without exception, believe that the United States is on the right path when it comes to its nuclear uh, enterprise. Um, the Russians will annihilate us in a nuclear conflict. There is no date, debate, no doubting this. We thought at one period of time, back before the Russians completed their current round of modernization, that we might be able to assemble the technology and the tools that would enable us to carry out a decapitation attack, a first strike that could nullify both the Russian leadership command and control and the bulk of their strategic arsenal to the extent that whatever was left could be handled by a ballistic missile defense system that we were in the process of installing on a global basis.
4: In the second act, we delve into the arms race that is currently underway. Ritter points out that the world's two largest nuclear arsenals are now controlled by the very same people responsible for modernizing these arsenals. This, he says, is insanity. The Russians, he argues, are well ahead in this race. They have new missiles and systems that. the U.S. can't match. The U.S., on the other hand, is spending trillions of dollars modernizing its own nuclear enterprise in a futile hope that it can match the Russians. Witter warns that if a nuclear conflict were to occur, the U.S. would be annihilated. The U.S. once believed that it could carry out a decapitation attack, a first strike that could nullify both the Russian leadership command and control and the bulk of their strategic arsenal. But the Russians have checkmated the US on this. As we move into the third act, Ritter presents a conclusion. He believes that there will be no negotiated settlement. He argues that Russia will never negotiate with anyone about Ukraine. The only negotiation, he suggests, will be similar to that which occurred in Tokyo Bay in 1945 when the defeated Japanese were told to sign the document or die. Ritter believes that the only chance for global survival is for NATO to accept the inevitability of its defeat and find a way to deal with a victorious Russia. She warns that if NATO opts to rage against the dying of the light, it will lead to nuclear war and there will be no winners.
1: What's the hope? Helga, you spoke of the need for discussions, for negotiations. Why in God's name would Russia sit down with the United States at this point for anything? For anything? We're liars. We're cheaters. We can't be trusted. Will we use Europe as an interlocutor? France and Germany can no longer be trusted. Nobody can be trusted. The United Nations Security Council can't be trusted because Minsk was brought to the Security Council, was given a seal of approval by the Security Council, and that means nothing. Who are the Russians going to talk to? Who do the Russians want to talk to? Who are the Russians willing to put their national security on the table and say, here, we're willing to trust you and give up X, Y, and Z. They guarantee our future security in exchange for what? Treaties mean nothing to the West. They mean nothing to the United States. They mean nothing to the Security Council of the United Nations. The only way we get out of this, and this is um, a very sad statement on my part, uh, there will be no negotiated settlement. Helga, I wish you the best of luck with the Vatican. I really do, and I hope you prove me wrong. I want you to prove me wrong. I want you to come up with an adequate negotiating form that actually works, but I'm here to tell you right now, Russia will never, ever, ever negotiate with anyone about Ukraine. The only negotiation is gonna be similar to that which occurred in Tokyo Bay, September of 1945, when the defeated Japanese were brought on board the USS Missouri and we told them to sign the paper or die. And Russia's gonna end up sitting down across the table from some iteration of a Ukrainian government and tell them sign the document or die. And a defeated NATO will be sitting in the shadows, no longer having martyr vehicles, leopard vehicles, Bradley vehicles or anything, because all of those will be destroyed on the field of battle by a superior Russian force that is singularly focused on one thing and one thing only, and that is defending the national security of Russia. Now here's the danger, because we have people like Jan Stoltenberg and people like, you know, various American politicians and uh and, and government officials who have said this is a conflict between NATO and Russia. And they've defined it as an existential conflict. Well, the only side that has an existential stake is Russia. Russia will never allow itself to lose nato will lose the question is will nato lose gracefully we bring up you know um dylan thomas's poem is the is nato willing to go gently into the good night or is nato going to rage rage against the dying of the light and that's the choice and and, uh, unfortunately that's where we come down to if nato opts to rage rage against the dying of the light ladies and gentlemen It's been a pleasure knowing you 2023 will be the last year that we're all alive on this planet kiss your loved ones goodbye do what you need to do it's over because it will lead to nuclear war and as helga said there are no winners the only chance for global survival is for nato to go gracefully accept the inevitability of its defeat and find a way to deal with a victorious russia and it won't be done through negotiations because nato Is not an organization to be trusted ever again. Neither is the United States nor any other nation out there. And this is a sad state of affairs. Russia will no longer be seeking negotiations. Russia will be seeking victory, a victory won on the battlefield. And remember, it wasn't Russia that set that term. It was Jan Stoltenberg who said the only way out of Ukraine is on the battlefield. Russia's taking it up, they're doubling down. That's a sad state of affairs. I don't see any way out of this other than through a decisive Russian victory. So decisive that NATO takes a back seat and allows it to occur without risking everything in a futile effort to stop it. Very depressing talk, but we live in times. Depressed-
4: As we reflect on Witter's presentation, it's clear that we are living in precarious times. The escalating tensions between NATO and Russia, the arms race and the lack of diplomacy are all calls for concern. However, it's important to remember that this is just one perspective. While Ritter's analysis is certainly thought-provoking, it's also deeply pessimistic. It's a perspective that sees no way out of the current situation, no hope for a peaceful resolution. But is this the only possible outcome? Are we truly on a one-way path to nuclear conflict? Or is there still room for diplomacy, for negotiation, for peace? While Ritter may have given up hope, I believe it's our duty as global strategists to continue searching for solutions, to continue advocating for diplomacy and peace it's our duty to prove with the wrong in the face of such grim predictions it's easy to feel overwhelmed to feel powerless but we must remember that we are not powerless we have a voice we can advocate for peace for diplomacy for negotiation we can call on our leaders to step back from the brink of war and find a peaceful resolution to the current tensions as we move forward let's keep this in mind let's continue to search for solutions to advocate for peace and to prove with the wrong because they all turn alternative, a world engulfed in nuclear conflict, is simply too grim to contemplate. In conclusion, while Ritter's analysis paints a bleak picture of the current geopolitical landscape, it also serves as a stark reminder of the importance of diplomacy and negotiation. It's a call to action for all of us, a reminder that we must continue to advocate for peace and work towards a peaceful resolution to the current tensions. So, global strategists, let's take up this challenge. Let's continue the search for solutions, to advocate for peace and to prove we the wrong. Because the future of our world depends on it.
6: But as far as the war in Ukraine is going, the last 10 plus days have been devastating for Ukraine. Uh, Putin gave a presentation, a speech and a three hour discussion with journalists uh, about the war and he cited some numbers. His numbers were actually low. He understated the damage, which is probably smart for him to do so. But we know that hundreds of tanks and several hundred artillery pieces and other armored fighting vehicles, thousands of Ukrainian troops. Current estimates are close to 15,000 dead.
9: But President Zelensky and just about every Ukrainian official has come out to say that's absolutely not happening. And actually, some Western officials think that there's every chance that the Ukrainians might actually launched now a counter-offensive against the russians the russians saying for days that they had encircled the city uh, wagner group which is fighting there uh, being very clear that they were about to go in that they've taken some of the northern suburbs in fact there was a uk defense intelligence report that suggested that two key bridges had been uh, demolished
6: so this has been nothing short of a disaster they've made no progress at all they've never reached the main defensive belt all the fights have been on the periphery or just inside the security zone and remember Just 20 to 25 kilometers in front of the defenses that Russia has built is this thing called the security zone and that's where the ukrainians have gotten and that's where their offensive has ended
4: it seems like every day we're hearing about another aid package being sent to ukraine another billion dollars being invested in a war that seems to have no end in sight and who's footing the bill you me every taxpayer in our country we're pouring money into a conflict that's not ours to fight and for what to keep the wheels of the war machine turning
6: putin gave a presentation a speech and a three-hour discussion with journalists Uh, about the war and he cited some numbers. His numbers were actually low. He understated the damage, which is probably smart for him to do so. But we know that hundreds of tanks and several hundred artillery pieces and other armored fighting vehicles, thousands of Ukrainian troops, current estimates are close to 15,000 dead. And we don't have any idea how many thousands are wounded, but we know the hospitals the nearby evacuation areas are all full of wounded. So this has been nothing short of a disaster, they've made no progress at all, they've never reached the main defensive belt, all the fights have been on the periphery or just inside the security zone."
7: United States is the main country that is committed to developing large-scale weapons program. A number of U.S. weapons have entered service in 2022, and there's a lot more to achieve initial operating capability in 2023. F-16V Block 7072 This is the most advanced version of the F-16 Fighting Falcon. On 15 February 2012, Lockheed Martin unveiled a new version of their F-16 at the 2012 Singapore Air Show. On 16 October 2015, the F-16V flew for the first time with an APG-83 Scalable Agile Beam Radar (AESA), a new center pedestal display a modernized mission computer, automatic ground collision avoidance system and many other
4: upgrades. The situation on the ground is dire. The Ukrainians are suffering heavy losses both in terms of manpower and equipment. Their offensive has been halted at the security zone far from the main defensive belt. And yet, instead of reassessing the situation, we're doubling down, sending more aid, more equipment. It's like we're stuck in a loop, repeating the same mistakes over and over again. And let's not forget about Belarus. The president there is claiming that they're receiving Russian tactical nuclear weapons. If true, this would be the first time Russia has moved their nukes beyond their borders since the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's a clear warning to us, a sign that we're pushing too far, too fast. But are we listening? It doesn't seem like it.
6: Of course, there's always the danger as this collapses, as Ukraine collapses, and everything falls apart, that there will be pressure for us to do something really stupid, which is intervene in western Ukraine. Right. And uh, I I still would not exclude that as a possibility.
1: Yeah, that's probably where we're headed. Boots on the ground. Another war that Americans don't want and more of our young men and women killed for a war we don't need to be involved in, in my opinion.
5: In the 1900s, the two were Soviet republics. Russia, the most powerful of the 15 republics and Ukraine, the second most powerful. It had defense industries, large agricultural lands, and housed much of the Soviet nuclear arsenal. During the Cold War, Ukraine was the arch-rival of the United States. The Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. Ukraine became independent, as did Russia. Ukraine inherited much of Soviet nuclear arsenal, but gave it up to Russia in 1994. In exchange, Moscow guaranteed Ukraine's security and promised to respect its sovereignty. They signed the Budapest Memorandum along with these countries. Cut to November 2013. Viktor Yanukovych was the president of Ukraine. He had a reputation for heavy handedness, corruption, and above all, for being openly pro-Moscow. In 2013, he rejected an EU trade deal. This deal could have meant greater integration with the European Union. Instead, Yanukovych decided to take a 15 billion dollar bailout from Russia. To many Ukrainians, it felt like being sold to Moscow. So protests broke out. They were called Euromaidan. Euro, because these protests were about Europe. And Maidan, because they happened in Kiev's Maidan.
4: And where is all this leading us? I fear it's taking us down a path we don't want to tread. As the situation in Ukraine deteriorates, there will be calls for us to intervene directly. But is that what we want? Another war, more of our young men and women sent off to fight in a foreign land? I don't think so. And then there's China, quietly establishing a spy base in Cuba right under our noses. They're playing the long game, waiting for us to exhaust ourselves in conflicts that aren't ours to fight.
9: But President Zelensky and just about every Ukrainian official has come out to say that's absolutely not happening. And actually some Western officials think that there's every chance that the Ukrainians might... Actually, launched now a counter-offensive against the Russians. The Russians saying for days that they had encircled the city. Uh, Wagner group, which is fighting there, uh, being very clear that they were about to go in. That they've taken some of the northern suburbs. In fact, there was a UK defence intelligence report that suggested that two key bridges had been uh, demolished, had been uh, had bl- blown up. Uh, And that perhaps was a sign that the Ukrainians were preparing to withdraw, that the Russians were somehow uh, on the offensive. But I'd ask you to remember Mariupol, another massive city in this this war eight months ago that the Russians finally took. But that was after months and months and months of fighting, uh, and the Ukrainians did not give up. It became a symbol of their sacrifice. Mm. Now, Colonel,
1: those numbers you were just given, that's just in the last 10 days of this offensive, correct? Yeah, yes.
6: Big numbers. Uh, when this first started, within the first three, four, five days, uh, they lost 7,000 killed. And that's why now people are estimating more than twice that number are dead. Al- almost all of the tanks that are being destroyed, not not all, but almost all, are Western manufacture. So we're ah. seeing French, German, British equipment uh, that's, that's being destroyed on the battlefield. And again, in most cases, these tanks, uh, all of this equipment is being destroyed by artillery. And it's largely because the Ukrainians attack into an area. They find themselves in a minefield. They try to get out of the minefield. And while they're stuck in the minefields, they're being annihilated. Mm. Then when they try to turn back to their lines, the Russians have already deployed aerial delivered mines behind them. So now they Mm. have to break through minefields behind them that didn't exist when they first attacked. Is this the latest I mean, this this is a catastrophe. So this has been nothing short of a disaster. They've made no progress at all they've never reached the main defensive belt all the fights have been on the periphery or just inside the security zone and remember just 20 to 25 kilometers in front of the defenses that russia has built is this thing called the security zone and that's where the ukrainians have gotten and that's where their offensive has ended
1: Mm. now colonel those numbers you were just given that's just in the last 10 days of this offensive correct
6: yeah yes Big uh, when this first started, within the first three, four, five days, uh, they lost seven thousand killed, and that's why now people are estimating more than twice that number are dead. Al- almost all of the tanks that are being destroyed—not not all, but almost all—are Western manufacture. So we're wow. seeing French, German, British equipment uh, that's that's being destroyed on the battlefield. And again, in most cases, these tanks, uh, all of this equipment, is being destroyed by artillery. And it's largely because the Ukrainians attack into an area. They find themselves in a minefield. They try to get out of the minefield. And while they're stuck in the minefields, they're being annihilated. Mm. Then when they try to turn back to their lines, the Russians have already deployed aerial delivered mines behind them. So now they Mm. have to break through minefields behind them that didn't exist when they first attacked. Is this, the latest I mean, this is this oh, is a catastrophe yeah. yeah
4: we need to wake up to the reality of the situation we're being pulled into a quagmire and it's time to pull ourselves out we need to reassess our strategy to stop pouring money into a conflict that we can't win it's time to focus on our own interests to protect our own borders and to stop fighting wars on behalf of others because at the end of the day following
10: up from um, some announcements earlier this year during the department's regular oversight of our execution of presidential draw on authority for Ukraine, we discovered inconsistencies in equipment valuation for Ukraine.
1: Says The accounting error was of around $3 billion U.S. billion. The major accounting error comes at a time when the U.S. is in the middle of an unprecedented debt crisis. Reuters says the error was the result of assigning a higher
6: than warranted value on weaponry.
7: Accounting error at the Pentagon overvalued U.S. aid sent to Ukraine by $3 billion. In a
10: significant number of cases, services used replacement costs rather than net book value thereby overestimating the value of the equipment drawn down from U.S. stocks and provided to Ukraine. Once we discovered this misvaluation, the comptroller reissued guidance on March 31st, clarifying how to value equipment in line with the financial management regulation and DOD policy to ensure we use the most accurate of accounting methods. We have confirmed that for FY23, the final calculation is $3.6 billion. And for FY22, it is $2.6 billion for a combined total of 6.2 billion dollars.
4: Now, I don't know about you, but when I make an accounting error, it usually involves misplacing a couple of dollars, not billions. But then again, I'm not the Pentagon. This is a story that raises more questions than it answers, and it's one we need to delve into. The Pentagon announced that it miscalculated the value of U.S. military equipment it had taken from its stocks and given to Ukraine. The error occurred when the U.S. military services used replacement costs for the transferred equipment to Ukraine, rather than the netbook value. This led to an overestimation of the value of the equipment provided. The Department of Defense overestimated $3.6 billion for fiscal year 2023 and $2.6 billion for fiscal year 2022 totaling $6.2 billion.
10: These valuation errors in no way limit or restricted the size of any of our PDAs or impacted the provision of support to Ukraine. while the dod while the dod retains the authority to utilize the recaptured pda this has no bearing on appropriated usai or ukraine pda replenishment funding approved by congress
8: journalist aaron mate spoke for us all i think when he responded yet another accounting error frees up billions of more dollars for the ukraine proxy war. how come these errors never free up any money for us healthcare or the unhoused. Yes.
11: So, as that Anne Hathaway look-alike told us, <laughs> uh, they have gotten some more money. You know it, how nice for them. It's like they drew that community chess card in Monopoly. <laughs> Bank error in your favor. Collect two hundred dollars.
3: Mm-hmm.
8: <sniffs> yeah. Lucky, lucky, lucky. Yeah, incredibly lucky. Remember- I wish the
11: Pentagon would accidentally give me six billion dollars.
8: Well, they might because remember the Pentagon in November of last year failed its fifth consecutive audit, they failed, they were unable to account for 61%, 61% of its $3.5 trillion in assets. Now when we're thinking about what the scale of that 6.2 billion that they've just come up with and are sending to Ukraine, what is that? Well, that's almost as big as Mexico's entire military national defense budget, which is $7.2 billion. And lest we forget, America's military budget is bigger than the next 10 countries' military budgets combined. Right. That
11: audit was for $3.5 trillion in yep. assets, with a T, $3.7 trillion in liabilities. Uh, department officials couldn't account for 61% of it. I remember, um, you know, when the Iraq and Afghanistan wars were uh, more active, the routine auditing failures, mismanagement of money, they lost so much money in those conflicts, money they couldn't account for where it was spent, what was what it was used to build, where the weapons went, probably picked up by our enemies, et cetera, et cetera, and so mm-hmm. on. So this is not actually at all surprising. I, the government is not great at managing uh, money, at least of all this aspect of it, the, uh, the Pentagon. Um,
8: yeah, well, it's worth noting that this kind of malpractice is not a government-wide phenomenon it's specifically disproportionately bad in the context of the american military and i don't think it's that difficult to understand why that is or how this just happens to keep happening in this one sector of government. Now
4: let's pause for a moment and consider the magnitude of this error. We're not talking about a minor miscalculation here. We're talking about billions of dollars. That's a level of error that could fund entire nations. It's a level of error that could drastically change the course of conflicts like the one we're seeing in Ukraine. The Pentagon has assured us that this miscalculation did not affect any prior transfers to Ukraine and that it retains the authority to transfer for that amount of equipment. But the question remains, how does such a significant error occur in the first place? And more importantly, how many other errors of this magnitude are lurking in the pentagon's books? The news has sparked outrage from both the right and the left with calls for the dog to account for every penny. And rightly so, in a time when many Americans are struggling to make ends meet, when our infrastructure is in desperate need of repair, and when our national debt is skyrocketing, every dollar counts. This isn't just about an accounting error, it's about accountability and transparency. It's about the trust that the American people place in their government and the expectation that our tax dollars are being used wisely and efficiently. But let's not lose sight of the bigger picture here. This isn't just a story about an accounting error. It's a story about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine and the role that the US is playing in that conflict. It's a story about how our foreign policy decisions are being made and who is making them. The fact that the Pentagon can find an extra $6.2 billion for Ukraine raises questions about our priorities. Are we focusing our resources on the right areas? Are we doing enough to support our allies and deter our adversaries? And are we being transparent with? the American people about how their tax dollars are being spent. These are questions that we need to be asking. These are conversations that we need to be having. Because at the end of the day, this isn't just about an accounting error. It's about the future of our country and our place in the world. So, as we continue to monitor the situation in Ukraine and the Pentagon's role in that conflict, Let's not lose sight of the bigger picture. Let's continue to ask the tough questions and demand accountability from our leaders. Because that's what being a global strategist is all about. Thank you for joining me today. And as always, keep questioning, keep learning, and keep engaging with the world around you. Because the more we understand, the better equipped we are to navigate the complexities of our global landscape. Now let's consider the implications of this accounting error. The Pentagon's miscalculation has not only resulted in an unexpected windfall for Ukraine, but has also exposed a significant flaw in our military's financial management system. This revelation should serve as a wake-up call for a thorough review and overhaul of the Pentagon's accounting practices. After all, if such a colossal error could go unnoticed, what other financial discrepancies might be lurking beneath the surface. Moreover, this incident has sparked a heated debate about the role of the US in global conflicts. The fact that the Pentagon can suddenly find an additional $6.2 billion to aid Ukraine raises questions about our country's foreign policy priorities. Are we channeling our resources in the right direction? Are we striking the right balance between domestic needs and international commitments? This incident also underscores the importance of transparency in government operations. The American people have a right to know how their tax dollars are being spent. When such a significant error comes to light, it shakes public trust and confidence in government institutions. It's crucial that we hold our leaders accountable and demand transparency in all aspects of government spending. In the grand scheme of things, this accounting error is a symptom of a much larger issue. It's a stark reminder of the need for fiscal responsibility, transparency, and accountability in our government. It's a call to action for all of us to stay informed, ask tough questions, and demand better from our leaders. As we continue to dissect this issue and its implications, let's remember that our role as global strategists is not just to observe but to question, to learn and to engage. It's our responsibility to hold our leaders accountable and to ensure that our government acts in the best interests of its people. So, let's keep the conversation going. Let's continue to probe, to question and to demand transparency and accountability. Because the more we understand, the better equipped we are to make informed decisions and to shape the world around us. Click the video on screen to stay updated and fight the free people's movement. Click this video now to stay updated.
1: Let's let's just start with basic strategic objectives. Um, let's look at the Russian strategic objectives first. Uh, first and foremost, Russia is seeking to um, get Europe and the United States to buy into the notion of a negotiated a new European security framework, It's something that Russia put on the table prior to uh, invading Ukraine. Um, If people remember back to December 17th, I believe of last year, Russia submitted two draft treaties, one to NATO, one to the United States, uh, which articulated uh, Russia's stance on what um, its vision of a new European security framework could look like. Uh, They invited the West to read it and have a serious discussion about it, and they were ignored. then Russia invaded Ukraine and Russia has two objectives. One is the demilitarization of Ukraine. The other is the denazification of Ukraine. Um, demilitarization means the elimination of all NATO influence on the Ukrainian military. Uh, and denazification means just that getting rid of everything that Russia um, considers to be related to the ultra nationalistic ideology of Stepan Bandera and the white supremacist. Um, manifestations of that. Now, these are words that I'm not using. I mean, people are going, "Well, Ritter, yeah, you're very good at Kremlin talking points." I'd advise people to go back and actually read the amendments put by uh, the United States uh, House of Representative on Department of Defense uh, appropriations legislation from 2015 up until just this year. Um, they continuously forbid funds, U.S. taxpayer funds, being used to train the Azov battalion, which is listed by the US Congress as a white supremacist, neo-Nazi organization. So anybody who wants to pretend that there isn't a Nazi problem in uh, in Ukraine, simply I refer you to Congress and its own legislation. The Russians believe that this is a big problem and um, they want it eradicated. Now, why did I bring this up? Because Russia hasn't shifted gears at all. I mean, Russia is still saying we want a European security framework out of this. And we are adhering to our original objectives. Russia has an altered course at all. Ukraine, on the other hand, um, is saying that victory can only be achieved when Russia is evicted from all territory, including Crimea. I would say that Russia is closer to achieving its objectives than Ukraine is to achieving its objectives. Uh, which tells me Russia has the momentum. Russia has the initiative and Russia has realistic objectives that can be
6: attained.
1: Um, Ukraine doesn't. I mean, there's just literally no one on this planet besides maybe um, I don't even think the Ukrainians believe it that they're going to recapture uh, the Donbass that they're going to recapture Kerson Zaporizhia that they're going to recapture Crimea. Uh, this is fantasy. So you have one side that's um, that their objectives are fantasy-based. You have another side whose objectives are, while difficult to achieve, are very realistic. Um, So I'll go with the realistic side over the fantasy side as to who I think is going to prevail. Then we take a look at capabilities. For certain, Ukraine had a good September. There's no one that's going to debate that issue whatsoever. Uh, But at what cost? And what I mean by that is, in order to achieve this good September, Ukraine had to absorb billions, tens of billions of dollars worth of NATO equipment. It took months to do this. It took months to get people trained on this, to bring the equipment in, to match the equipment with the people, organize it and bring it to the battlefield. And then in one month, Ukraine pretty much burned through everything. The casualties they've suffered have been horrific. They've lost the equipment. They've lost most of the manpower. um, And they're down to a position now where they're begging the West to help them reconstitute this capability. Russia started September with pretty much the same force structure that it brought in when it invaded in in, in February. Uh, And what had happened is uh, Russia pretty much had insufficient resources to the task they had set forth for themselves. Uh, They had many parts of the defensive line that were stretched thin, and the Ukrainians were able to exploit this and the Russians wisely, I believe uh, traded territory for lives. Uh, The Russians aren't in the business of just throwing away Russian lives. And so they weren't going to hold on to a strong point and defend it to the last man. Uh, They were more than happy to withdraw trade territory, save lives, consolidate their defensive positions, all the while inflicting what should have been prohibitive casualties on the Ukrainians, tens of thousands of of losses. Um, Meanwhile, while Russia is consolidating their lines, they're reinforcing Vladimir Putin ordered the partial mobilization 300,000. Uh, Reservists have been called up 87,000 of them are currently deployed into the special military operations zone. The rest are finalizing their organization into fresh combat units, which will give the Russians tremendous flexibility and operational capacity.
4: Demilitarization refers to the elimination of all NATO influence on Ukraine's military, while democrification is about getting rid of ultra-nationalistic ideologies and white supremacist manifestations. Now some might say that I'm parroting Kremlin talking points, but the truth is, even the United States House of Representatives has recognized the issue with the Azov Battalion, a white supremacist neo-Nazi organization, in their own legislation. So where does this leave us? Russia's objectives, while difficult, are are realistic. On the other hand, Ukraine's goals of evicting Russia from all of its territory, including Crimea, are closer to fantasy. In this situation, Russia has the momentum, the initiative, and the attainable goals. Let's take a look at the capabilities of both sides. Ukraine had a good September thanks to tens of billions of dollars worth of NATO equipment, but they burned through it all, suffered heavy casualties, and lost most of their manpower. Now they're begging the West to help them reconstitute their capability. Meanwhile, Russia started September with the same force structure as when they invaded in February. They traded territory for lives, consolidated their defensive positions, and inflicted significant casualties on the Ukrainians. They've even called up 300,000 reservists, with 87,000 already deployed. As Ukraine's combat capability shrinks, Russia's increases. The West, it seems, made a mistake in misinterpreting Russia's soft approach to the conflict, as they have now taken the gloves off and shown that they can close down Ukraine as a modern nation state anytime they want to. So what does this all mean? We have a situation where one side has realistic objectives and the means to achieve them while the other side clings to fantasy. This is a stark reminder that sometimes the world isn't black and white and that we must take a step back and look at the broader picture. In closing, the situation in Ukraine is far more complex than it appears on the surface. While it's easy to vilify one side and support the other, we must remember to stay informed and look at the situation objectively. The consequences of this conflict extend beyond Ukraine's borders, and its resolution will have far-reaching implications for the global political landscape. As we continue to analyze the situation in Ukraine, it's important to consider the role of external forces, like NATO and the United States, in shaping the outcome of this conflict. The Western powers have been actively supporting Ukraine, providing them with much-needed equipment and training, However, this assistance may not be enough to tip the scales in Ukraine's favor, especially considering Russia's overwhelming firepower and clear objectives. We must also examine the long-term consequences of this conflict on the international stage. Ukraine's struggle for sovereignty has reignited tensions between Russia and the West, tensions that have been simmering since the end of the Cold War. With both sides increasing their military presence in the region, there is a growing risk of escalation and a potential return to a new Cold War-like standoff. high-stakes game of international diplomacy, one wrong move could set off a chain reaction that could have devastating consequences for everyone involved. This is a sobering reminder of the delicate balance that must be maintained to prevent a full-scale conflict from breaking out, which could have far-reaching implications, not only for Europe but also for the entire world. At this point, it's critical for leaders on both sides of the conflict to approach the situation with a level head and a commitment to diplomacy. The key to a peaceful resolution lies in finding conflict and ground and seeking a mutually beneficial outcome for all parties involved. So what can be done to resolve this crisis? First and foremost, there must be a renewed commitment to diplomacy and dialogue. Both Russia and Ukraine need to engage in meaningful negotiations to reach a peaceful settlement that addresses the concerns of both sides. The international community, particularly the United States and NATO, must act as mediators and facilitators in this process. Second, there must be a focus on rebuilding trust and fostering cooperation between Russia and the West. This may seem like a tall order given the current state of affairs, but it's essential for ensuring long-term stability in the region. The world has come a long way since the days of the Cold War and no one wants to see a return to the tense, high-stakes standoffs of the past. Lastly, the international community must work together to address the root causes of the conflict, including the rise of ultranationalism and white supremacist ideologies. This will require a coordinated effort to combat extremism, promote tolerance, and encourage democratic values both within and outside of Ukraine. The situation in Ukraine is a complex and multifaceted issue that cannot be resolved through force alone. Diplomacy, dialogue and cooperation must be at the forefront of any efforts to bring about a peaceful resolution to this conflict. As citizens of the world, we must remain informed, engaged and committed to fostering a more just, peaceful and stable global community. Click the video on screen to stay updated and fight the free people's movement. Click this video now to stay updated. So
0: how is the spring, now summer offensive going uh, for the Ukrainian military.
1: It's an abysmal failure. I mean, they've lost upwards of um, 10,000 troops already, uh, both on the line of contact and in the rear assembly areas. Um, this this offensive has no chance of succeeding. They have yet to penetrate or and even make uh, significant contact with the first line of Russian defenses, let alone the second or third line. Um, you know they've bogged down in the initial uh, obstacle barriers, the minefields. Um, they are being uh, their attack is broken up by artillery and um, and everything I told you was going to happen. Judge is happening here. the The, the Russian doctrinal defense is um, the the Ukrainians are incapable of breaching it. And what makes this even more criminal is that any military professional knows this, especially those who wear four stars on their uh, shoulders who served in the U.S. Army. They know the army doctrine for, um, uh, you know, a, a breaching assault. And they know that one of the, fir- the the very first requirement is suppression. That means suppressing Russian artillery, air, electronic warfare, everything. The Ukrainians have suppressed nothing. Therefore, this is literally a suicide uh, attack. The Ukrainians
2: can do once again what they did earlier in the war, which is to do better than Russia in forced generation, in other words, in recruiting, training, equipping, organizing, and employing additional forces.
1: Well, now we know why we lost the war in Iraq and we lost the war in Afghanistan, because everything that uh, David Petraeus just said was wrong. Everything. Not one thing he said was right. Ukrainians are not well-trained. They're not well-led. You can't be well-led when you have 28-year-old, 25 and 28-year-old battalion commanders with less than one year, Uh, of military experience Uh, that's not well-led you're not well-trained when you fall in on equipment for the first time in January Uh, you begin training on it in February and you're done by May Uh, that's not well-trained on anything either the operation of the equipment this masterful US made infantry fighting vehicle the Bradley or the Leopard tank or any of the Western made artillery systems Ukrainians don't know how to use them Uh, they're not well-trained they're poorly led Their morale is poor Meanwhile, the Russians, everything he said about the Russians is wrong. Uh, They're, you know, these troops have high morale, extraordinary levels of training. We're seeing it right now as they absorb the Ukrainian uh, attacks, as they respond, uh, counterattack locally. The Ukrainians haven't come close to the first line of defense yet. The Russians are well-led, well-trained, well-equipped. Their morale is sky-high right now. Um, Everything Petraeus said is 100% wrong. I mean, normally when somebody humiliates themselves like that on national TV, they should gracefully uh, retire and go play golf or, you know, bridge or whatever else people do at that stage in their lives. But they shouldn't be going on national TV and promulgating such poor analysis. But remember, this is the man who gave us Afghanistan. Here, he
0: is, here he is again in the same interview. You can take a guess, a mental guess as to what he wants to see happen in Vilnius on July 11. And you can also take a guess on his opinion on F-16s.
2: But there should be a very solid path to NATO membership that's provided at the Vilnius summit on 11 July. But in the meantime, the focus should be on enabling Ukraine to the greatest extent that we possibly can, so that the Ukrainians can prove to Putin that the Russians will not be able to out-suffer the Ukrainians, and also we prove they won't be able to out-suffer the Europeans and the Americans as well. Does this include F-16 jets? Oh, absolutely we should have made the decision to transition to western aircraft long ago again this is inevitable
1: what's inevitable is that the uh, nef-16s that are provided to the ukrainians if they are uh, will be destroyed uh, either on the ground or in the air they'll have no impact on the battlefield whatsoever they can't again general petraeus is betraying um, the fact that he's lying through his teeth Uh, I know he's an Army officer, but he was, you know, a a commander who had worked with the Air Force and understands the limitations of the F-16 as a platform, the logistical requirements, the fact that the Ukrainians will be getting F-16s that are beyond their expiration date, being piloted by people who don't know how to fly them with insufficient training, insufficient weaponry. It's a death trap. And um, Atreus knows this. Uh, Why he's saying this is beyond me. Well, what it means by path is there's, I believe there's uh, seven um, things that Ukraine has to do to be a member of NATO, according to their membership application plan, which was approved back in uh, 2008. Uh, they've only accomplished two of those. And uh, I mean, Joe Biden, uh, the president of the United States has come out and said, there ain't no path to Ukraine being a member right now, because uh, while they've done two things, there's, you know, there's still corruption. There's still a lot of things we don't know about. Uh, we're not satisfied with plus it just Remember, it's a path towards membership. What no one's asking Ukraine to be a member now, except Ukraine. Um, NATO understands that you can't have Ukraine become a NATO member. Now, what, what they're talking about is a post-conflict world where, you know, the fantasy world where Ukraine prevails and the Russians retreat and Ukraine gets everything he wants. How then do you transition in a post-conflict environment to Ukraine becoming a member as soon as possible? But again, this is total fantasy. Let me just reiterate what I've said all along. Uh, Ukraine is on the path of destruction, Uh, the course that they've taken uh, in concert with their NATO allies will lead to Russia acquiring another 20 to 30% of Ukraine's territory, Uh, the demise, probably fatal demise of the Zelensky government, and uh, guaranteeing that whatever's left of Ukraine, uh, once Russia wins decisively, will be a little rump state with no economic viability, no political viability, it would be a horrible tragedy for the people of Ukraine.
5: So, what do you think? Can we destroy any building in Kiev? There are no limitations for us, but we don't do it due to a number of considerations.
0: What do you think? He's the calmest, he's the calmest guy in the room.
1: And he has every reason to be calm because he's in control. I mean, you know, It would have been his calmness would have been more impressive had we seen it and we did see it uh, a year ago Uh, because a year ago um, there were a lot of factors that were unknown, like how strong, how resilient the Russian economy would be, uh, what the political consequences of mobilization would be. Um, They still didn't know what the uh, ramifications of uh, NATO's billion dollars, tens of billions of dollars of aid to Ukraine would be. So Putin was not in same position that he was and he was hesitant to go forward and have this kind of interaction today a year later you're seeing the most relaxed man in the world that is a man comfortable with every aspect of his existence uh, he has a sense of humor The facts are there he, because he knows what this outcome will be he is in charge he is in the driver's seat there's nothing the West can do. Uh, short of a nuclear war, which would be the end of everybody. And he's already indicated that if that's the route they want to go, uh, so be it. Uh, everybody will be dead, but the Russians will go to heaven as martyrs. Um, how do you deal with that mindset? Uh, you know, But he is comfortable with the strength of Russia, with the posture of Russia. Um, nothing's going to ruffle this guy. Compare and contrast that with everybody else on the Western side. Look at the frustration of Hodges. I mean, that was a man fidgeting in his seat. Look at Petraeus, he's scared deer in headlights as he's lying to everybody. Look at Sullivan, look at Blinken, look at Biden. They are running scared. Biden can't get in front of his donors without panicking. The threat of a Russian nuclear attack is real, is real, he said. Well, if you look at Putin? Does he look like a man frothing at the mouth waiting to attack? What he said is we're here. We're ready to negotiate after we destroy everything. We, we took out five patriot systems in Kiev, he said. <laughs> and he did, and he said, so we can take out anything we want to, but we choose not to. That's a man in total.
4: Vetter begins by painting a grim picture of the Ukrainian offensive, describing it as an abysmal